So let's begin. Last week we looked at the looked at the uh, idea of confession, vidui, that appears explicitly appears at the end of the book of Vayikra in the context of the tochacha, the admonition that is subject to the 26th chapter of Vayikra. There, which describes the exile on account of the non-fulfillment of the covenant, and uh, then it describes the manner, the mode in which, or the requirements, those things are needed to return to the land. Tobler mentions three things. Number one, that the, the land has to pay back the, the Sabbath years. The mitzvah, which is mentioned explicitly in Vayikra, chapter 26, the non-fulfillment of which results in exile, is the failure to observe the Shemitah. So the land has to make up those years that it didn't, so it, that it didn't lie fallow, and when it makes up the years, then you can return. Torah repeated that more than once. We taught the chapter several times. It's the only mitzvah that's actually mentioned in this uh, chapter. It's explicit mitzvah. That's number one. Number two, the context of returning to the land is represented in Vayikra as a function of God remembering God's promises or God's covenant with the, with the people. Zacharzi et priti Yaakov, Afet priti Yitzchak, Afet priti Abraham Eskar, that's in the 42nd Pasuk and the 45th Pasuk so that's the again, once again, God is remembering God is remembering a covenant covenant of Yaakov, Yitzchak and Abraham and then later the covenant of the, of the ones who came, of the ancients, when I took them out of Mitzrayim, Torah refers to that also as a covenant. That's number two. That's chapter 26, verse 45, page 272. And then, in addition to these two elements that are required to return, is the third element, and that's mentioned earlier, in verse number 40. Will be. On the same page, in verse 40, they will confess, we translate Vidui's confession, they will confess their sins and the sins of their uh, ancestors, Avotam, inasmuch as they have trespassed against me. So there we have Vidui mentioned explicitly. It seems to be a component, a necessary ingredient to, uh, for, for return. It is interesting that the Vidui is both in terms of their own confession and confession of the sins of those who came of Avotam. Right? Avoranaku Avotenu Chatanu is the text of, at least one text of the Vidui on Yom Kippur. Naku Avotenu. So here we have the three things required to, to return, and the return is represented um, uh, in verse number 44, where the Torah says that God says that even in the lands of their dispersion, I have not forgotten them, I have not rejected them, 
Rogaltim. I have not rejected them. I have not find them disgusting. Galtim. Spurn them, it says here, to destroy them. Itam to annul the covenant. The covenant still holds, even in the land of their dispersion. Right? I remember that I that when I took them out of Egypt, so presumably means I took them out of Egypt, now take them out for wherever they are now. Whatever the exile is, unnamed. But the same way I took them out the first time, I will take them out again after these three two conditions and the covenant is remembered. Um so the covenant, remembering the covenant could be a function of the, of the confession. That's possible. Confession is in verse 40. Remembering the covenant is verse 42. Uh, Rashi added an additional element. Rashi was bothered that after the confession in verse 40, right, the next verse says that I will bring them, I'll bring them uh, to uh, a, a land where they find hostility. And then their heart will be, uh, the stubborn heart will humble itself. Rashi was bothered after, after the vidui, why is there need for this suffering? So Rashi, without directly answering the question, speaks of the suffering as part of the atonement process. That's what Rashi says. So this was, we saw this last week, in contrast to, in contrast to what it says in the second admonition, in Zvarim, in the Tokachos of this week's parasha, actually, and uh, this week's parsha talks about terrible suffering. It ends with going back to Egypt in boats, and nobody will buy you out. But two chapters later, we have this chapter 30, we saw this last week, the process of return. And there, there is no mention of God remembering the prior covenant. There isn't even a mention explicitly of confession. It does say the and there the but there's a long at least eleven verses which talk about this process of return. So that's the contrast between these two different sections of the Torah. So I wanted to add something which actually is actually quite interesting. You what? So Rashi's troubled by after the confession was still not back in the right. Rashi's bothered, that's right. Which chapter verse is that? 26. It's all in chapter 26, verses 40 and 41. 40 and 41. Yeah. The, um, what's interesting actually is that I was thinking about this, that's what we said last week, we talked about this last week at some length. I was thinking there's actually another section of the Torah that might be related to Vayikra chapter 26. And that is, if you look at the next book, Bamidbar, chapter 5. It's indirectly related to us. Vayikra chapter 5. Bamidbar. Bamidbar, verse number 5. Page 290. The book of the Bamidbar in general, the first ten chapters, describe the setting up of the camp that travels in the desert. There was a short section over here that's very curious, beginning in verse number five of chapter five. It says, So tell B'nai Israel the following. Isha Wisha, 
כי יעשו מכל חדות האדם לימור מעל בשם וישמו הנפש ההיא They, can, they will confess what they did wrong. Here we have confession again, Vidui. Deshiva Dashamo Barosho, Bachamishito Yosef Olav, Vinatan Lasher Ashamro. Then the person should restore what they did wrong, add a fifth, and give it to the one that the person has wronged. So we're talking about some kind of situation between two people. Sounds like something monetary has taken place. It's redressed by the payment. In addition to the payment, you add a fifth. Then it says, But what if the person has no redeemer to whom to return the money? It means the person has died or moved away. You can't find this person. You would give it to the person's heir, apparently. The goel, it's called, relative. But if the person has no relative... You can't find any relatives. What do you do with the money? You owe the guy a thousand dollars. What do you do with it? You can't find the person. You can't find the relative. In that circumstance, the money is returned to God. What to God's representative, which is the priest. Apart from the sacrifice, the atonement sacrifice, which expiates him. That's the end of the section. The last two verses are something else. What is this talking about over here? So the rabbis understood that this section of the Torah is a repeat, a repeat of a section in the book of Vayikra. If you go back to Vayikra, back to the Vayikra again, there it says, chapter, page 216, The rabbis understood that Bamidbar 5 is a repetition of Vayikra 5. Sounds that way, actually. There, yeah, verse number 20, page 216, Vayikdaber Hashem al-Roshelimar Nefesh kitechta omala mal b'ashem If someone sinned and commits a trespass against God, So if a person essentially dealt deceitfully with another person, he either has an object that he's watching and he denies that he has it, or stole something, or defrauded him in some way, or found the other guy's object and lied about it. And he took an oath on these things. It seems to be a situation where, for whatever reason, he swore he doesn't owe him the money. But it turns out that he actually does owe him the money. So what happens? If he's found guilty, if a person, in fact, is guilty, if a person, in fact, is guilty, 
או את העושק אשר עשך, או את הפיקדון אשר הפקד איתו, או את האבידה אשר מצא. או מקור אשר יישבע עליו השקר, ושירם אותו בראשו, חמישיתו יוסף הוריו, ואשר הוא לא יתננו ביום אשמתו. ועד השמו יביאו השם היו תמים. וכיפר עליו הכהן לפני השם ונסלח לו על אחת מכל אשר יעשה ראש מרבה. So why then is the parish in Bamidbar repeated? What? There's two things. There's Vizui is number one. And number two, there's the additional point that what if the person's not around? What if the person's not around? So who, to whom do you return the money? So the Torah says you return it as a Goel, some kind of a relative. But if, what, what if the person has no Goel? Has no relatives. Then you give it to the Kohen. You return, it says you return it to God, but God is represented by the priest. The Pasha is known in the rabbinic literature, because the Gemara has a question, who has no relative? Everybody's got a relative. Who has no relative? So the Pasha is one person who has no relative. A uh, convert has no relative. So the, therefore, we're talking about stealing from a Gair. It's called Gezer, Pasha of Gezer HaGair. That's the rabbinic understanding. So I was thinking, that the parasha may be there for a different reason. In other words, you say, the parasha is there to add Gezel like here. Okay, it's there. But why is it in Bamidbar chapter 5? Why couldn't you include it in Vayikra chapter 5? Whatever. So perhaps it's there for another reason. So I was thinking, it has interesting implications for us, that you have a parasha which, which speaks of confession, Vidui. You have a parasha where the language is to do a trespass against God that's number two and you have a parsha which speaks of if the person has nobody to go ail has, has no redeemer then you give the money to God right? you return the money to God I was thinking that these elements of vidui and the deeper point of a goel, someone that redeems you, but in the absence of a redeemer, God is the redeemer. I was thinking that chapter 5 of Bamidbar actually is directly related to chapter 26 of Sefer Vayikra. Chapter 26 of Sefer Vayikra talks about somebody, the people, who are exiled from the land. Now they want to get back. So how do you get back? And, and what is the what is what has happened in chapter twenty six? People have failed to observe the sabbatical year, the shemitah. What's interesting is that chapter twenty six of Vayikra follows chapter twenty five of Vayikra. Chapter twenty five of Vayikra, of course, is completely about shemitah. That's what the chapter is about. Starts with shemitah. Then it moves from Shemitah to the Yovel, to the Jubilee year. This is the Super Shemitah. Seven times seven, the 50th year. And then the Torah goes off in this whole excursus about a new mitzvah, basically, which is, we would call Tzedakah. 
which is about redeeming either somebody who was forced to sell his land, or redeeming a person who was forced to sell himself as a, uh, as a, as a slave. That person, the Torah has a name for that person. It's called a uh, goel. That's where the term goel comes from. He's a goel. That's chapter 25. Chapter 26, actually, says the following. That if you fail to observe the Shemitah, the Sabbath years have to be made up. So we're sent off into exile. But God has not forsaken us. God still remembers us even in exile. And God will someday bring us back, provided that we pay back the Sabbath years, have to repay your debts. And provided, in the words of the Torah, they will confess their sins concerning the trespass they did against me. And then what happens is, if they do that, then who's going to bring us back, actually, in that parsha? Then God brings us back, actually. Now, what, what's interesting is that all those elements, Vidui, Mi'ila, Goel, and the Goel in this case being God, because there is no Goel, but, but God is always, God stands in for the Goel, is precisely the added Parsha of Bamidbar chapter 5. By the way, this has very interesting implications for us, but I wanted to make another point, that in the book, in Sefer Tzvarim, by contrast, well, how, does, how does this week's Tochacha end? It goes on forever. Right? The last verse of the Tochacha in this week's Parsha. I will return you back to Egypt in boats on the path you thought you would never see again. You will sell yourself as, as slaves. To your enemy, nobody will buy you. What does it mean nobody will buy you? It says you're going to sell yourself. So someone did buy you. What's the end? Nobody will buy you out. It's a pshat, actually. Mepharshim say it. This is obviously a pshat. You will sell yourself, but the Enkonah, nobody will buy you out. Nobody will take you out. Nobody will. means there will be no goel. It's exactly in contrast to what we see in Vayikra. In Vayikra, at the end of the day, there's a goel. God is the goel. If you, if you do vidurin and all that, God has not, God will bring you out. But in Sefer Zavarim, the last word of the covenant in that chapter, chapter 28, this week's parasha, the Enkonen, nobody will buy you out. Nobody will buy you out. No person will buy you out. And God won't buy you out either. That's how the Torah ends. Nobody is stuck there, except for one thing, as we saw last week. You can always buy yourself out. That's the difference between Zavarim and Vayikra. In Sefer Zavarim, two chapters later, it says explicitly, no matter where you are, even in the farthermost corners of heaven. Right? Even after the blessing and the curse take place. If you take to heart, then you be inaugurate the process of return. That's always true in Sefer Zavarim. And the reason is, as I said last week, Sefer Vayikra speaks to a community of slaves, the first generation. The first Tochachar is first generation. Those people can't actually buy themselves out because they're slaves. They always are slaves. Always want to go back to Mitzrayim. They can do, they can be part of the solution, but they can't actually inaugurate it. They can do vidui. That they can do. Vidui is necessary, but vidui alone is 
does not create a full return. The full return is only possible by paying your debts, and most importantly, in the context of the uh, of the covenant. In the context of the covenant, everything is possible because each side has obligations. So God remembers the covenant, and God is going to take us out of exile. God is going to redeem us. That's the idea of the Brit. We feel we feel that we ourselves cannot really redeem ourselves. We can't do it. We're not ready for for the tshuva in the full sense of tshuva. It's not possible. But in Sefer Zvarim, the community is the second generation, not the first generation. They were never slaves. They have no interest in Egypt. They were never in Egypt. They're totally free people. In that book, you, you can actually inaugurate and you can be a full partner in the return. But you have to start it. Actually, go to El Ravavecha, and there's we studied last week in the parish of Tshuva, which doesn't actually explicitly mention Vizu, but it mentions a full return, and that's interactive Tshuva, because the word Shav is mentioned seven or eight times, four of the times regarding people, at least three of the times referring to God. It's a little dance. Each side takes steps. So that's addressing a different community. What's interesting is that the parish in Vayikra is referenced in Bamimba chapter 5, and I'll say something very, very, very interesting about that. Food for thought, which is not our direct topic, but maybe it is our direct topic, actually, I'll tell you. And the following, food for thought, exactly. Here's, here's, here's what it is. You see, chapter 5 of, Vayik, of Bamidbar, chapter 5 of Bamidbar, which is picking straight up in the language of the first Tokocha, that starts in verse number 5. The part that I read ends in verse number 8. And there are two additional verses about the Kohen. And in the beginning, in verse number 11, number 11, we have another parasha. The whole chapter. The parasha of Sota. Which actually begins the same way. Ish Oish, it says, Sota begins, Ish Ish ki tiste ishto, umalo bo maal. You have exactly the same language of mal or mal, which is trespass or transgression. That's the parish of Sota. So it struck me something very, very interesting about this, a small digression. It's related to Rosh Hashanah Kippur, of course. And it's like this. Parsha of Sota. Parsha of Sota, we would call, is a, is a legal text. Legal text. It has it. The man chooses his wife of adultery, and then in the Torah, he shreps her off to the priest, and we have this like trial by ordeal of sorts. She's given these bitter waters to drink, and there's a curse and all that. The rabbis of the Talmud, to some degree, have reinterpreted the parasha to make it a bit more even-handed. It's all very interesting. We would call this a legal text. We know that we typically divide the text into, we have a legal text, so we have narratives, we have stories. This, we would say, is a legal text. Now, this is the parasha of Sota. There's another parasha, actually, in the Chumash, which also sounds very much like Sota. Actually, more than one. But the one that I have in mind is not this week's parasha, but the beginning of next week's parasha. Not chapter 28, but chapter, middle of chapter 29. If you look at the middle of chapter 29... Page 439. Devarim chapter 29. So, you stand before God. For what purpose do you stand before God? 
So the Chumash says, Uyavacha bivrit Hashem elokechu uvalato. To enter into God's covenant and God's Allah. What is an Allah? Allah Lamed Hay. Allah is an oath, but it's often an oath that has also a negative side to it, a curse. Shuata Allah. The Sota, actually, in the parish of Sota, is forced to swear Shuata Allah. The curses, because there were curses written down. If you were guilty, you suffer. Then the Torah goes on in this section, beginning in this verse, all the way to the end of the chapter, and it's this covenant which is being created in Pashat Nitzavim to make you a people. And the covenant is not just with those that stand here, but even those that don't stand here. Those, those who are here with us today and those in the future. And then the Torah goes on, and what is the concern? Why is there a need for this kind of a covenant? Why is there a need for this kind of a curse and all that? What is the Torah's concern in this chapter, in chapter 29? What is the point of this, of this particular formulation of the covenant, which is presumably an extension of the previous chapter? So the Torah says the following. The Torah is concerned. You all stand here together, it says, right? All of Israel, the elders, the elders, the leaders, the children, the women, Tabchem, the Shechem, Gercha, the Ger, everybody stands here. Then the Torah says, you're all standing before God, right? The Torah says the following, you know what happened in the land of Egypt, that's verse number 15. You saw the abominations of Egypt, you saw their idols. Verse 17, Lest there be one amongst you, man or woman, family, tribe, whose heart has turned away from God, who desires to serve, to worship a foreign God. Maybe there be one amongst you, here they translate, a stock, sprouting poison weed and wormwood. What is Rosh Vulana? How does it taste, Rosh Vulana? It's bitter. Maybe, there, maybe there'd be a bitter weed amongst you. That's what the Torah calls the one whose heart is turning away. I mean, secretly. Maybe. We don't know. Outwardly, the person was totally fine. But we're concerned, says the Chumash, maybe there's somebody amongst you who's very bitter. Shoresh Rosh Vulana. And this person, when this person hears the, the curses and the oaths, will say, I'm going to be okay. Shalom Yeli. I'll do whatever I want. I'll follow my own heart. Luman, to the utter ruin of moist and dry, very strange. Luman, spot Here the translation, which is a difficult verse. To the utter ruin of moist and dry alike. Shoresh Perarosh If this happens... Such a, we're concerned about the individual who secretly would do something wrong. So the Torah says, Lo Hashem If that be the case, God will not forgive this person. And top of the next page, Hashem God will be a jealous God. And God's anger will rage against this person. And all the curses written down in the book will be directed against this person who secretly does something wrong. 
And God will raise his name from under the heavens. Furthermore, God will separate this person for evil from all the other tribes, according to the curses of the covenant written down in this book. And people will ask, right? Later people will say, why these terrible punishments? What kind of punishments? Right? Sulfur and salt. Beyond sowing and producing. Nothing can grow there. Like Sodom and Amorah. Why did, what, what is it? What is this about? And they will say, right? What is the great anger? And they will say because they abandoned the covenant of their God. That God made with them when they left Egypt. And they worshipped other gods. And God was very angry. And brought apart all the curses written down in this book. Right. In the last verse, the hidden things God knows. The things that are revealed, we know. For we are, we are not children to perform which is written in this Torah. What does this parasha remind us of? Sota from top to bottom. It has every element of Sota. First of all, it has the idea of sitting secretly. That's number one. Sata. That's number one. Secretly. Number two, the idea of the jealous husband. The word kinah. The raging jealous husband. That's number two. Number three, has the idea of curses. Number four, the idea of writing down the curses. Number five, the idea of bitterness. Of course, in the case of the Sota, she's forced to drink the bitter waters. Number six, it has the verb to erase. In the case of the Sota, it's written down and the curses are dipped into the water and they are erased into the water. You have essentially, in other words, the point over here is very simple, that what you have over here is this image of God as a raging, jealous husband. And because it's not just any old... And the jealousy takes extreme forms because it's not just a stranger that was wronged. It's somebody who have a covenantal relationship that was wronged. And therefore God is represented as very angry. And you have something else over here also very interesting about the Sota. The Sota, who probably dies when she drinks this water, it says her belly shrivels up. Right? In other words, the, the, the imagery over there is one of kind of the inability to, to produce children, kind of infertility. And what you have over here is exactly the same image. Nothing can grow there. Like, like the story of Sodom and Amora, it's probably Mrs. Lowe's. She becomes a pillar of salt. The pillar of salt means to be infertile because in the Chumash, in the previous chapter, which is chapter 18 in Bereshit, you have the contrast to Sarah. It's given the blessing of children. And Mrs. Lowe's is the opposite. In short, now, why do I mention all this? It's very, actually very interesting that the first Tolchacha is tied in with the parish of Sota because the language of Me'ila and the Vidui parish, in other words, now we understand chapter 5 of Bamidbar is directly linked to Tolchacha number 1. And, and, and chapter 29 of Devarim is tied into Tolchacha number 2. In each case, it's the Sota. And what you got to wonder about, I wonder about it a lot, is I said this parasha of Sota, we would call it a kind of legal text. It is certainly falls into the category of a legal text, but what I wonder about is whether even in the inception, even in the first parasha, the Torah doesn't want us to understand not just as a legal text, 
because that's a kind of metaphor for God's relationship to, to the people. It wouldn't surprise me, because we even have this, have this at the golden calf, where Moshe actually takes the golden calf and he makes them drink it. And of course, that's the breaking of the covenant in that case that takes place right after Sinai. In short, it's interesting how the two Tosachos actually align very nicely and how the parish of Sota actually is used, I would say, metaphorically to describe and even to explain why God is so angry. God's angry because it's not just any stranger. It's this covenantal relationship, which is also the theme of the first Tosachos as well. Let's see. Briti. We have the Chemet Briti. In short, it's interesting about the... Now, let me come back a second to the first Tokacha. The first Tokacha is... doesn't actually... The first Tokacha, you return to God because God brings you back. There is a, some sense of confession, that's true, but there's not this, the full tshuva as described in Devarim chapter 30, that is not present in the first Tokacha. Now, I was thinking that actually strikes me that this idea of, 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 of God remembering, God remembering that you have in, and remembering the covenant, God remembering the covenant as the central feature of return in Vayikra chapter 26, we have this in our, in, our, in our liturgy. When do we have the idea of God remembering as the central feature of our, of our, of, of our liturgy? Yeah, it's one day in the year, or two days, Rosh Hashanah. In Rosh Hashanah, first of all, Rosh Hashanah is called in our liturgy what? It's called Yom, Yom HaZikaron. That's, that's a, so the writing you see straight up that Yom HaZikaron is Rosh Hashanah. But it's much more than that because of the, the blessings of the core blessing of Rosh Hashanah the central literally the central blessing of Rosh Hashanah is what we call Zichronot there are three blessings in Rosh Hashanah one is Malchuyot God's kingship that is the basic theme of God is king what does it mean God is king what is, what is this king doing king is remembering the second blessing of Rosh Hashanah is Zichronot and it has three different pieces to it Three different pieces. It starts with, 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 with judgment. Atazo Ram is the first theme of Zichronot. This is good to know for Rosh Hashanah, you know what I mean? So Zichronot begins with, begins with judgment. Atazo Ram, God is judging individuals, God is judging nations. God knows everything, God knows the rationalizations, God knows the past, whatever. That starts with. That's the first theme of Zichronot. It's like a stuff is so basic, by the way. And there's a person, actually, who was recalled. We remember somebody in this context. No. We remember somebody in the context of, Zichro, of, of God's judgment. It's, not, it's, 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 it's there. It's a, it's a phrase we say in the davening, it's classical davening. 99% of people who say it have no idea what they're saying. Okay. The rabbis don't explain it either. Maybe they, maybe they also have no idea. Yes, I've explained it many times, but I'm just a teacher. And I, but the point is, Zayom Tchilat Maasecha Zikaron Liyom Rishon. 
תיחוק ישראל הוא משפט לאלוהי יעקב. זה היום תחילת מעשיך. This day we say, prayers, is the beginning of מעשיך, the beginning of your beings that you created. And this day is remembrance of that first day. And what is that referring to? How is the remembrance of what first day? What does it mean, the remembrance of the first day? So it's based on a medrash. The davening is based on a medrash. The medrash says that the world was created on the 25th day of the month of Elul. The sixth day of creation is the first day of Tishrei. According to the medrash, the first day of Tishrei is not the first day of creation. It's the sixth day of creation, but it's the day that the human being was created. That's one medrash. Then the medrash continues. And on the day the human was created, the human sins. Let's get which hour it is. They figure out the hours. And on the day that the human is sinning, the human is judged. It all takes place on one day. The creation, the sin, and the judgment take place on the first day. So the, so the, the text of the prayer says, This day was the beginning of Masech, was the creation of the human being. And this day is remembering that first day. How is Rosh Hashanah remembering the first day? Because Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment, Yom Adin. So this day of Din recalls for us the first judgment. Kichoku Yisrael hu mishpazel heyakov. What does that mean? This is an ordinance for Israel. In other words, we, Israel, are willingly entering into judgment every year and recalling the first judgment. So who is judged? Which person is the subject of the first judgment? Adam. Adam. He will throw his wife in too. Adam, basically, right? Point is, the first person that Zichronot begin with judgment. That's what Tazochem means. Tazochem Masdeh Fokei Ko Yitzurei Kedah, right? And you know what happened in the past, right? And the nations are judged. Ezel Acherev, Ezel Hashalom, Ezel Arav, Ezel Asova, right? Ubriot, and every and every being is judged, not just Jews. Ubriot, Ba'ipakeidu, everybody, it's universal. Laskiram, Rachayim, Milonis, Kad, Kayom, Azeh. Who is that remembered on this day? So we are entering into the judgment. The first person is Adam. That's the first theme of Zichronot. And the judgment is one you can't escape from. Because God knows everything. Knows the past, knows the future, knows the rationalizations, knows the motives, right? The impulses. So that's the way it begins. That's the beginning of Zichronot. Then it moves to the second theme of Zichronot. What is the second theme of Zichronot? It's useful to know in Rosh Hashanah what you're actually saying. I mean, that's, a, you know, that's like, the point of departure, you know? It's a good place to begin. Yes? Uh, how it connects to the Catholic notion of original sin. Where do you think it's coming from? Yeah, right. What? Of course. Yeah. That the human being is, that's one way you can read Genesis. I mean, I think that that's a long conversation. Yeah, right. But the idea that the human being has the potential for sin from the beginning, that's clear from the Chumash. Didn't make that up. Yeah. Whether it has to happen on the first day or not, that's a good question. Could we wait a week? But no. The point is, yeah, it's very much related to that. The, you know, and it has to do with the inevitability of this. I mean, you get a sense when you read Bereshit that they're going to eat that fruit. You know what I mean? It's not, anyway, that's the first, that's how it starts. 
It's scary for another reason. The judgment is very scary. Yom Hadin, you know? That's completely lost on the American scene, by the way. It's totally lost, completely. There's no pachad. There's no pachad. I grew up, no fear. I remember, I was, I grew up with the survivors. They, whatever they practiced, there's a sense of, I mean, it's awesome. Rosh Hashanah is an awesome day of standing in judgment. Zochalim v'roadim yomboechem, saying slichas, shivering, you know? Place to shake it. It's totally lost. Anyway, that's the first theme of Zichra. Then he moves to theme number two. Because otherwise, it sounds hopeless, actually, you know? Stay before a judge who knows everything. What, what, what are you going to say? So then there's a turning point in the davening. Suri anticipated, but she said too soon. Turning point. Ashre Isha lo yishkocheka. It's an awesome davening. Ashre Isha lo yishkocheka. Happy is the one who does not forget you. Ben Adam Yitam Yitzvach. Turning point because hopeless. The happy is the one that doesn't forget God. First of all, it talks about God remembering. Happy is the person who keeps God in mind, who strengthens oneself through God. Right? All the all the names come before God. All the actions. It's a brilliant, really. What's what doresh ma mean? You are Doresh. God is Doresh. What does it mean? Drisha. What does Drisha mean? Inquire. What does it mean to inquire? Judge. Has two different meanings. Two different meanings to Drisha. One is to judge. Drisha v'chakira. To inquire means to judge. A judge is a Drisha v'chakira. But the word Drisha has another meaning. To search. To seek out. To set one call this place Drisha because it's serious learning, but it's also a search. It's a part of searching for God. That's what learning should be. Everybody has to do that. So we're searching. But if Doresh Masekhon to seek out as a different God is seeking us out, it's a different feel to it. It's not just judging. You seek something out that you want, something you're searching for. Suddenly the God of judgment is not an impartial judge who just looks at the scorecard. But God is Doresh, like God is Doresh. Who is, who is God Doresh? God is Doresh, the ones who don't forget. The ones that don't forget, God is Doresh them, God seeks them out. Who is the example in Rosh Hashanah of the person who sought out God and God did not forget him? So we move from Adam to Noah. Adam to Noah. Noah represents, you would call it providence. Hashkacha, we say. It's the best example of, of God's concern for an individual. Everybody's killed. But there's one guy who survives, and, and his family survives with him. And that's the Gamas Noah Right? You remembered him. You remembered Noah. So for Noah, it's not just an objective memory. Remember people, some people remember them very fondly. We like them. So we like people, we give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe we should give everybody the benefit of the doubt. But we, people that we like, you know? Yeah, okay, that's why he did that, but he's a good guy, you know? Because we like them. When you don't like somebody, every little smallest thing is terrible. When you like them, favorably disposed, everything is okay. 
So that's Noah. And then we have verses, biblical verses about Noah. That's the second theme of Zichron. So, but the problem with that is very simple. That's going to save you from judgment if you're Noah. But Noah was called an East Sadiq. He was a righteous person. Amin, he was a pure person. What about the rest of us? What about the shepherds like us? What are we going to do? Speak for myself. How do we get out of the judgment? Not Noah. Not a Tzadik and a Tamim. Then we go to stage, to stage number three. Which is what we count on on the Rosh Hashanah service, which is the highlight, really. Which is the blessing. And the one who represents this is actually Abraham. I would say that Abraham, in general, if you had to pick out one person for Rosh Hashanah, it's Abraham. As far as the liturgy is concerned. As far as the Torah reading, it's actually the women who are, who are central. Sarah, Chana, Rachel. Those are the, the Kriyat Aftar. The Parshios, the Aftar, and the Kriyat Aftarah. It's all about the women, actually. It's interesting. But the liturgy is, Abraham is the hero of Rosh Hashanah. And that's, what does Abraham represent on Rosh Hashanah? What concept does he represent? Not judgment and not providence. Covenant. Covenant. You don't have to guess. The covenant. In fact, the verse from the Torah is the last, is the tenth verse. That's how you end it. And then we, we turn to God at the end of Zichronot. And what do we ask God to remember? Don't guess. Do you know the covenant? Go home afterwards, open up a master, you'll see it. The binding of Isaac. Kedas Yitzchak. Akedat Yitzchak hayom v'zarol b'rachamim tiskar. Akedat Yitzchak is we want the same way Abraham overcame his own his own basic nature of kindness to do God's will. We ask God to overcome God's basic nature. What is God's basic nature? We say, yeah, truth, right? Emes. God's seal is true. We should overcome our. Yes, God overcomes. Right. We ask. Well, no. We we never ask to sacrifice our kids. We ask God to remember that Abraham Abraham was willing to do this, and therefore we approach God at the children as, as Abraham's children. We ask God to judge us favorably on Rosh Hashanah, not because we deserve it. We ask God to remember the covenant that God has constructed with our matriarchs and patriarchs and especially Abraham we ask God to do what God said God would do in the book of Leviticus chapter 26 to bring us back because not because we are fully worthy on our own we understand we did wrong we confess but we know that's not enough so God will bring us back because if you pay off your debt and then God remembers the covenant Right? And then, the basic theme of Rosh Hashanah, actually, Yom Azikaron, can be in two words, you have a blessing, it's ancient, by the way, the ancient, the languages, it's ancient. It's one of the most beautiful things we have, which is constructed on three people. It's constructed on Adam, and Noah, and Abraham. And what's interesting is, it actually concludes with the binding of Isaac. And the point that I have made making the last several years about this blessing is that the author of this blessing, who's ancient, he might described it to Rab, actually, the first, first generation of Mora in, 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 in Babel, but he had 200. 
that basically Rosh Hashanah is in our tradition Hayom Harat Olam it's creation that the writer of this poem is what it is a poem sees that the culmination of creation is actually the story of the binding of Isaac Akedat Yitzhak for this writer is the culmination of creation because because it's actually the Pshat and Chumash because the way the Torah starts it starts with banishment from Eden and the rest of the Torah is a search for the alternate Eden the alternate sacred space the alternate sacred space is discovered in the Torah or, in, or recovered in the Torah by, by, by Abraham that's the story of the land of Canaan and especially the Akeza Haram Moriah the place that God sends us to the place that God chooses so that essentially the world that God created and then uncreated through Noah becomes recreated again both the first chapter of Genesis where God creates heaven and earth that's Noah who redoes chapter 1 but the second creation narrative of the Garden of Eden the sacred space is recreated not by Noah but by Abraham and therefore one can say that the creation narratives of Genesis begin with Adam proceed through Noah and culminate with Abraham's discovery of sacred space and that's precisely what the Zichrona blessing of Rosh Hashanah is based on but my point is this anyway get back to the point I want to make well that's very nice yes how is that there? it's there because it's modeled it starts with judgment the, the Zichrona parallels the destruction and recreation of the world it starts with judgment which is the cause in the Torah for God's destruction then it moves to the next stage of Noah who recreates the first phase the first creation story of heaven and earth all those languages found with Noah he was found with Noah but Noah does not actually connect to a particular holy space that Abraham does and in two ways the first Lechacha and the second Lechacha the first is Lechacha to the land of Canaan and the second is the Lechacha to Moriah to discover God's, God's place the place where God and the human can inhabit the same place so that, that parallel actually to the creation narrative of Genesis which is Adam, Noah and Abraham the parallel in the prayer service based on Adam, Noah and Abraham is judgment, providence and covenant that's the parallel and concludes with covenant and then the claim that we make on Rosh Hashanah is take us back to you not because we're necessarily so worthy we haven't done a full repentance we haven't had time we're steering the show for us suddenly we're being judged so we begin to think about repentance we can't not get at the place we can have a full repentance that's Yom Kippur that's Yom Kippur's day of repentance that's a full repentance but Rosh Hashanah begins the repentance because we are beginning to think about repentance and we we were thinking about it the chauffeur has called us to think about judgment and repentance but we know we, we haven't gotten there yet we, alone we can't do it we're asking God to remember us yes we're going back then to the idolatry in the secret idolatry yes the one who says this doesn't concern me I'm okay right and I don't have a problem with idolatry I like it I'll get away with it right. have to know that right. I like it and right. that's what so the idea is that 
That is a person who has totally forgotten the covenant. That's right. Well, and these will not bring it to mind, and willfully will not bring it to mind, and therefore God erases that person. Right, but that's actually, there's another point as well in the Torah, which is that the point of that chapter 29 of Devarim, where the Torah explicitly singles out the person, is that when you, when you enter into the land, then you become responsible for the other person. A spec- that's really the point of the Chumash. When you enter into the land, you become a, 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 a community, and one way or the other, willy-nilly, you become responsible for the other person. It really is an amplification, an embellishment of what you have in the first parasha, because don't think, it's, it's, it's everybody's problem. It's not just this guy's problem. Right. It's within our community, these things are happening, and we have to look at ourselves. How... how how do we, how does this come out from our, from our community? That's a very important point in the Chumash. Yeah, all right. Um, but people don't know. Right, so people don't know, but exactly. So people, right, when it comes out eventually, that's the point. They, the question is, could you have stopped it? Could you not have, but if it happened, but the, I think the point is that if it does happen, we have to, we can't just say that that's his problem. If it's happening within our community, that I think we have to take some responsibility for it. I think that's the point of, and that's the difference between living in the desert, outside the land, and living in the land. In the land means it's your place, and you become responsible for what happens inside. Could you have stopped it or not? It's a good question. I just said, well, I have a volcano. Well, we don't. Maybe we can't stop it. But when you find out about it, you become responsible. I think that's the main point. Yes. I, 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 I just have to, no, no, talk, but at 2 o'clock I have to just take some medicine. I'll be back in three minutes. Go ahead. What a clock, yeah. There's so much back and forth with personal responsibility spelled out if you take uh, someone, you have to return it with a fit, and the larger picture of being part of a class, right? Right. And so much of it is our power needed to extrapolate from that vision now in our prayers because we. So individual in this country, in our I think it's a problem. I'll tell you something. I had a conversation. We had last year a guy who was here. Actually, we also read a program in Israel. I brought him up. His name is Jor, Jor Bandi. Interesting guy. So Bandi spoke to BJ also, by the way. His specialty is, is, uh, is actually Heschel. He got very involved in teaching the teachings of uh, Rabbi Heschel. And he's a big believer in Heschel's thinking. I had several long conversations with him. But one of the points he makes, which is actually a very important point about Heschel, and I was talking, actually, I initiated this conversation, sponsors to the, uh, to the, to the Holocaust, to the Shoah. Different people, Lubavitch Rebbe had one kind of response, Rabbi Salvechik had a different response, Heschel had a different response. Heschel's response was something, you have in the Baal Shem Tov, something very similar to this. Heschel's response was very simple. He said, terrible thing happened. We didn't do it. But we're part of a world that actually did do it. And therefore, since we're part of this world, yeah, uh, since we're part of this world, we have to now try to create a world where these kinds of things cannot happen. This may have it in the Baal Shem Tov, in different forms in the Baal Shem Tov. And that's what he set off to do. He's marching in Selma because of the Shoah, actually, because he's saying, I can't be part of, otherwise I'm part of a world. We have to make a different world. It's not blaming us, but on the other hand, we are part of it. You can't say it's not, not part of it, because we are part of it. And 
That was Heschel's thinking. I think the Chumash is saying something along those lines in chapter 29 of Tavarim. It's saying, if you, part of, if you see yourself as being part of an actual community, then you can't ever say, the bad guys did it and we, we wash our hands of it. You can't wash your hands of it because you are part of it. Willy-nilly, you're part of it. If you're, if you're living just in isolation, each one's a little person, that's one thing. But the point of the Chumash is, once you enter into the land, then you can't ever say that again because that's community. And the truth of the matter is that there's a whole story in the, in the, not in the Torah, but in the prophets about exactly such a situation. Somebody commits a crime and God's response is, Chata Yisrael. Israel has sinned. Mm-hmm. It's a parasha I actually was thinking of studying today for a different reason. That's where we have Vidui, actually. It's one of the parashas. The story of, 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 uh, of Achan. That's where Achan takes the booty of Jericho. And the Israel loses a battle. And Joshua complains to God, what do you bring us here for? Chata Yisrael. Israel has sinned. There you have the word Me'ila as well. Very interesting. Chata Yisrael means if you if you're, see yourself as a real community, you can never say, he did it. You can't say, he did it. I didn't do it. I didn't know about it. Okay, he didn't know about it. But it happened on your watch. That's the point. If it happened on our watch, then in some sense we have to do some soul searching. How could these terrible things happen? I think about this all the time. Bad things happen in all kinds of places. And you can't say, yes, it's a few rotten eggs. You can always give that excuse. But usually it's not just a few rotten eggs. Sometimes it is, and usually it says something about about the community, and we have to correct this because we see ourselves as part of that community. So the, the answer is, I think that in terms of our prayers, it is very individual. It's very every, everybody's a different person, obviously, with a different mission, different place. The other hand, if you believe in this idea of of, of, of community, which our tradition does believe in. However, that works, okay? How these disparate people create a community, but if you do believe and you take it seriously, then I think it involves some taking responsibility. I think that's... And we are, in a sense, relying on that. We're asking God to see us as part of this community. as part of Abraham's community. So don't judge us or you would judge somebody else. However, if we understand the idea of covenant, let us uh, off the hook because you like, you like my great-grandfather. Does it mean there's a piece of me that is like Abraham? That's a good question. What does that all mean? But the sense of community is very, is very important, I think. It's just going to be two minutes. I just got to take this two o'clock.
said last week about the Vidui in the Chumash now let's look at let's start with the prayers of how our prayers reflect this idea of Vidui so you hear as far as Yom Kippur is concerned so we have on Yom Kippur we are reenacting the service the Kohen God on Yom Kippur. It's called the Avoto. Avoto. Chapter 16 of Ayikra. So in chapter 16 of Ayikra, page 244. 244. Yom Kippur has three main pieces to it classical service of Yom Kippur. The first is the reenactment of the service of the Kohen Gadol. It's probably the least significant, but that's one of them. It's called the Avodah. And then the two main pieces of the Yom Kippur service are the confessions, the Vidui, and then we also have the penitential prayers, the Slichot. Small point that actually, classically, let's talk about the traditional synagogues. They say the regular pass of the davening, but the classical, the most authentic service, that is to say, keeps the ancient traditions. There are two. Typically, they keep the ancient traditions. The Sephardim, that's number one, and the German Jews, and they change nothing. So the Yekis, they simply, the Yekis don't ever, they don't let their imagination run wild. They just do what they, what they did for hundreds of years. That's right. It's not an insult, I think. It's a very positive side to it. So the point is that, traditionally speaking, 
It's a very important point. Yom Kippur, in each of the five services of Yom Kippur, we say Slichot. Each of the five services, we say Slichot. We means we should. That's the classical service. What happened was that even in many traditional synagogues have taken Slichot out of three of the services. They took them out of Shachrit, they took them out of Musaf, and they took them out of Mincha. How this happened, why it happened, is an excellent question. It happened. Goldschmidt and his critical master goes crazy about this. How could it be? Whatever. And they actually, not only did they not say the Slichot, but they actually chopped them in a very strange place. They didn't totally chop it out. So that the end of Slichot, if you pray in a traditional service, you remember that the end of Slichot, you say, the very end of Slichot, which is Shema Koreinu. Shorach HaMecho, and then say Shema Koreinu. Now it's something that makes absolutely no sense, and you can't actually justify it. It's absurd, actually. Shema Koreinu. Shema Koreinu, it's the last blessing of the Shema Nehesri, Slichot HaMalad of the Shema Nehesri. It's like saying, listen to, I mean, it's like not praying the whole Shabbat just saying, listen to what we, you know, hear our voice. You haven't said anything. What do you mean? What, what? Makes no sense. Anyway, how this happened is very interesting. There are two theories about how this happened, which Goldschmidt talks about. One is, has to do with, he, perhaps, he traced it back, I think it's Goldschmidt who says this, to a time where the Chazanim, the advent of the Chazan as a paid professional. So you pay a guy a lot of money, you know? You want to hear him sing something. You can't do too much with the Slichas, you know what I mean? The Sana Tokev is another story. So, you know, so therefore, over time, Slichor became devalued. Because that's not what you came to show. You're paying the guy good money, you want to hear something, you know? That's one theory. But the other theory, which I think is probably better, is this. It's very interesting that the Slichot, what are, are Slichot, first of all? So what Slichot are is the following. Slichot have a, a one basic line to them. Slichot are the repetition of God's attributes of mercy. Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum, B'chanun. Prior to saying Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum, B'chanun, we say some kind of a poem. The poems have different themes. One is Akedah okay, Yitzchak, one are judgment poems, one are poems that we're asking God to forgive us, all kinds of themes. One talks about the desolation of Jerusalem, the Migdash being destroyed, a whole variety of themes. What happened in Europe was that they wouldn't say the same Slichot every year. In fact, someone gave me a German Moxer, and there's, an, an, in the, in, I think in Breuer's actually, they hand out a card which Slichot they're saying this year. They, they, they actually alternate them with some kind of a cycle. What happened was, according to Goldschmidt, since they didn't say the same uh, stuff every year, in the sitter, instead of printing out all of the Slichot, they would say, Kan Omrim Slichot. At this point, you say Slichot. Once they didn't actually print it in the sitter, and they said, Kan Omrim Slichot, it became Khan Loam in Slichot because you don't say it. it. People say what's written. You know what I mean? It's mindless to some extent, but that's the way people are. If it's printed, you say it. So, that's what happens. There are many examples of things that we say on Rosh Hashem Kippur, which make no sense, actually. But it's printed. The printer put it in. 
for whatever reason. Times there are two different versions. The printer puts in both. We say both. The address on here, I'm kid, but I'll give you some other time, I'll show you examples of this. Many events, the kids are Slichot were an essential part of the, of the Yom Kippur service in each of the five prayers. Most of the traditional Matzorim only have them for Kol Nidre nights, and they have them for, uh, for Ni'ila. But for Shachrit, for Musaf and Mincha, they, were, they don't say Slichot. When I pray, we say Slichot all the time, and it adds a lot to the davening, by the way. It's not just, just to say more words. I mean, more words is a problem. In the classicals, in the Birnbaum Machsor, you'll see Konidre and Niwa. Other Machsor might include, depends which Machsor you use, but the truth of the matter is that they were taken out by the, by, by the printer. They're supposed to be there. And the point about the Slichot, not for now, is that the Slichot are written for each of the prayers. Each of the prayers is different. The Slichot for Shachrit and Mincha are not the same at all. They have a completely different feel to them. The Slichot point you in the following direction that the five prayers of Yom Kippur have a completely different theme and different feel to them such as saying the same words it's different Minnesota has one feel to it Konidre night is different Shachmas is different the Slichos picks it up very, very, very new. they're very attuned to it great sensitivity to the, to the ideas of Mincha and etc it's very powerful some of them are very beautiful some are very difficult the Ashkenazi Slichot are very difficult. This volume were easier to read. In any event, the point is get back to the main point. The service of Yom Kippur has three main pieces to it: Slichot, the confessions, service of the high priest. Now, let me say something now in the little time we have today, and next week we'll deal more with the service of Yom Kippur. I want to go through it so you get a feel for the Yom Kippur service. But the Vidui. Yeah. Next week. No, no next week. There's a whole, the full day. Remember oh, next week there's nothing. Oh. Oh, so the weekend. The weekend is Rosh Hashanah. So I'm missing your class. What happened? They stole my class. No, no, we were meeting in October. October second. October Before Yom Kippur. Okay, before Yom Kippur. Just, just that's good. Okay, fine. Beautiful. Okay. All right. So let me just say one thing. On chapter 16 of Ayikra, the service of the Kohen Gadol. So here. This chapter mentions confession. The confession, Vidui, is mentioned in chapter 16. Let's find this. This is on... Where is this? Where is this? No, no, I'm trying to find the verse, though. Hold on for a second. One second. Yes, which verse is that? 21. Oh, it's in the next page. 245. Right. The Chigami Kaper Kodesh, right? After he does, after he purges, after he cleanses the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, then he shall sacrifice the goat that is living. On Yom Kippur, there were two goats. Two goats, right? The draw is a lottery, a lot. One of the goats is sacrificed in the Holy of Holies. Kodesh Kadashim. The other goat is called the Azazel. That's the scapegoat. And that goat is sent out into the desert. In the Chumash, it's sent, it, sent away. Probably Azal. The word Azal means to go. So it's sent away. The goat that's sent away. Right? The A is that's Azal. 
the goat that's sent away is by what it means and in the Chumash it sounds like you just sent it away in the Mishnah it's actually killed it's thrown down a cliff in the Chumash it doesn't sound that way in either way, either event it's sent out of the camp so this particular goat it's very strange it's not brought as a sacrifice, it's brought outside Torah explicitly forbids you in general to do such a thing but here, this goat bears all the sins of Israel verse number 21 here you have Vidui. Here you have the confession of the Kohen Gadol. He confesses, it says, all the sins of Israel. Avonot and Pishayem Rochol Chatotam. You have Oven, Pesha, and Chatat. And he places them, what's them? Sounds like the sins, actually, on the head of this goat. And the goat is sent away. The scapegoat. This is the interesting here actually here's the Yavidui in the rest of the Parsha chapter 16 you won't find the word Vidui however the Mishnah understood it differently come to this in a minute it's very interesting and not only do we have confession over here with the scapegoat we have something else that's very odd we have Smicha now Smicha the putting of the hands is not odd Smicha. That's not odd. We have smicha many places in the Torah. But we don't have in the Torah, I can't remember another time, where you have two hands. The Torah usually says, Samach Yodo. Yodo is singular. He places his hands. When it comes to the scapegoat, it's two hands. What is the difference? On that very word. On That's right, it is. Very true. Yeah. Extremely. Yeah. Right. But we read it anyway. It's written. Right. There's a Korean Steve. Avram is correct. There's a Korean Steve in verse 21. It's written, your dough, and it's read, your dough. That is a good point. But it says, but it says, stay. It does say, stay. So therefore, it does mean two. What is the difference between placing one hand and placing two hands? Yes, you do. That's very correct. Took the words out of my mouth. You have exactly, so he says very well, you have exactly the same thing with Moshe and Yeshua. God said to Moshe to place his hand upon Yeshua. The Torah says Moshe places his hands upon Yeshua. So let me the What's the secret? So, what do you think the significance is? I'm going to get to it. What do you think? I'm asking you a question without a. Uh, so impatient. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay, but that's good. Okay. So, here's the thing. I think the difference is this. I think there's a difference that I would say that one hand I would call designation. To designate, like you point to somebody, oh, that one over there, you point, that's one hand. Putting the two hands, let's say Suri's example, Moshe and Yoshua. 
God said, put your hand upon Yoshua, designate him as your successor. But his mouth, Moshe, your dove, is different. So I would say that's not designation, that is transference. And that actually, the Chumash makes that point. Take Yoshua, take Joshua, a man who has some spirit, and put your hand on him, he's designate that guy, he's got potential. But it says, Yoshua benun morei ruach achmah ki samach moshet yadav alav it's different he's full of wisdom not just that some spirit he's filled with the spirit how so? for Moses has placed his hands upon him that's different there you are with God said place your, your majesty your glory upon him that somehow is an act of transfer you're transferring your essence to your pupil how do you do that? it's magical how do you do that? it's not so simple not so simple. But 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 strikes me that when it comes to Sayyam Mishtawea, it's not just you're designating the animal as mine. Maybe putting a hand this is my sacrifice. But the point of the Torah is that somehow the sins, the Avonot, are actually placed upon the animal. It's very striking language for the Tan Otam Arosh He places them. What is the them? Not clear. What sounds like sounds like you can read it. He places the iniquities upon them. There's some kind of a sense of way beyond designation over here that they're actually being transferred over to this animal, and that is to say they're being transferred over and being sent away. Because the point of the chumash is, it's not just that you're transferring somebody else; you're actually sending them away. There's two different pieces to this. One is to say they're not with me anymore. But then there's some kind of distancing. You're sending them off to some other place, which is a very striking idea. In any event, in the Chumash, it's only... In the Chumash, it's only the Sari HaMishtaleya. Now we'll see the davening, which is different. Yes? So today, when we don't do sacrifices, we don't have a day of the Keshe, we don't have the Koenig, etc. When we read the Avodah, is that the same thing? Is that the same level of transferring? Yeah, I would say that. I would say the following. I'll tell you a story. Many years ago, we had, was at, had, I've had one sabbatical with Risha in all my years, since 1999. So that year we went to Israel, and I ran into David Hartman, me and my wife. He, he had never, I never met the guy. He, 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 he came and shook our hands. After 10 seconds, he offered us to be in his place. I, he liked us. So we went there. So, uh, so in this, I happened to be there. They had some kind of interfaith conference. It was very interesting. Christian, mostly Christians, a few Muslims there too. So the Christians, the one of the main people was a woman who I forget her name, professor, Harvard Divinity School. So we were talking, and that session was about being in the, about, about, about the temple. She was talking about how the maybe how the church is the altar or whatever it is. And I'm walking out, and she says, I mean, she says. She says just like you have in your synagogue, you're, you're also in the temple. So I said to her in a nice way, I said, it's very interesting you say that. Because I, I realize how difficult it is for one faith community to understand another. We have, I never feel I'm in the temple, nor do I know a single Jew who feels that she or he is in the temple. Ever. And I said, in fact, there are only actually two occasions in our service where I think we try to, to reenact the temple. One of them is Yom, is, is Yom Kippur. 
So we are actually reenacting it, and the other is Oshana Rabbah. I think Oshana Rabbah there's a sense that you're walking around this whole, this, 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 you know, the Mizbeach. But it's so funny that you say that, I said, because he. No. That's totally wrong. You have no understanding whatsoever. We have no feeling. We could pray in those days, we had phone booths, Davin Minch and the phone booths, you know what I mean? No, it's not true. You know. And we don't even need that. You have to go to the synagogue to pray. So you can pray in your house, you can pray in the street, you can, you know. So it's completely, it's interesting how one doesn't understand the next. It's very hard to understand a person's experience. I think that's very true. I think that on Yom Kippur, we actually are trying, we are reenacting, I would say pretending, but it's not pretending, you're actually there. You are there, you know what I mean? That's, that's what it means to reenact it. So in some sense, you're actually there, and, and perhaps because we feel that since the entire since the entire atonement in the Torah at least is predicated on this service, which we don't have, okay? And we're well aware that we don't have it. In fact, the Tzulichon for Musaf make that, that's their main point. We don't have a service, we don't have a sacrifice. We don't, how, do you, how do you compensate? That's, that's the core Tzulichon of Musaf. Those who say Tzulichon, that's what it's about. How do we actually make up for the fact that we don't have a, a service? So, part of it is, I think, you the point of what well taken, that actually we do have it. We are, that's the idea of, 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 this, of, this, of this re-enactment. Re, uh, re, uh, in any event, that's as far as the Tchumash is concerned. As far as the rabbinic understanding, which is found in the Mishnah. By the way, the service of Avodah Yom Kippurim is based upon the Mishnah. In fact, the earliest Avodahs the earliest ones, the Ashkenazim say Yamitz Koach, the Spanish say Yatakonanta, which is a later Yatakonanta. But if you look at Goldschmidt's Masa, you'll see that the earliest Avodah of Yom Kippur is virtually verbatim the Mishnah of Masechet Yoma. It's very striking. It's the Mishnahist, actually. The Mishnah understood the Parsha differently. We say this on Yom Kippur. Kacha Yomer, Yoma. Masechet Yoma is the Masechet deals with Yom Kippur. Yoma, the day, great day. So, I now, if you remember the service, let's see if we have it here. You have different marks. No, really. In Muslim of Yom Kippur, on three different times, three different times, before Yom Kippur, it was October, whatever it is, the Kacha Yomer, right? Right? And this particular, this, I don't know which mark this is. This is, I forget which one this is. Adler. In Adler, actually, has the sleekers too. In Adler, the Adler Master, for those that have Adler, this would be page 161. The Kachayom there, 161, 162, 164. Three different times you have the same paragraph. The Kachayom there, you see that? You found that? The Kachayom there? This is what he would say. Right? Kachayomer, Ona Hashem, Chotas, Yavisi. What is this, Kachayomer? What is this? Three different times we say it. You know how to sing it? There's a Nusach to it, you know? Anyway, fine. Maybe in October 2nd, we'll also learn the Nusach for Yom Kippur, it's not bad. Kachayomer, the way the Mishnah understands chapter 16 of Vayekor, it's not, it's not in the chapter. The Mishnah interprets that there's not one confession, there are three. That's the understanding of the Mishnah. There are three confessions. The Kachai, this is what the Kohen, Kohen Gadol is doing this. It's what the high priest would say. Ana Hashem. 
The first one is that the Kohen says, I and my household have sinned. It's a confession. What is the confession? He confesses for himself. According to the Mishnah, and that's what the prayer service represents, the confession is not just for the people. The first confession is for himself. The Kohen Gadol can't do the service till he confesses, I knew Beiti. What does Beiti mean? His family. His wife, his family, his kids. Me and my house, we have sinned. Right? That's the first confession. Then on 162, we have the second confession. Also on Hashem. Same language, but it's different. Boshati Lifanecha, Aniyu Beiti, Uvnearon Am Kedoshecha. The second confession is for himself, for his family, and for all of the priests who work in the temple. That's the second confession. His extended family, one might say, but his, those that work in the temple. That's the second confession. The third confession is on 164. The third confession is, On Hashem, Kapanel, Avonos, join Chatu Avu, Pashu Lifonecha, Amcha, Beit Yisrael. Right? So the third confession is what we have in chapter 16, the confession on the scapegoat sacrifice. That's the confession for all of Israel. The, the point I'm making over here is twofold. First of all, that the rabbinic on this now. Now, you, we, what interesting question would be, where do they see this in the parasha? Where, where are they taking this from? It's not just, they're not just making it up. They're actually reading chapter 16 a certain way. Maybe next time we'll see how they read it. It's very interesting. Yes, Sandra. One more question. Is there any significance to the fact that, number one, it's a number two, is Bashati, number three, is Abonus, and number words, the three expressions of, um, of, of, of sin, um, does, it, does it impact the sinner? In other words, is this a way that the coin is signifying the sinner? Yeah, I mean, the question is, what is the difference between the chait of an and Bashati? Right. And number two, why in this order? It's another question. Those are two separate questions. Which, the, which is discussed in the Gemara already. I said, you're right. The three different terms for sin, and that's like they're different, and the order of them is also very interesting. Chet, Avon, and Pesha. Right? That's a, that's, a, that's a good question. Why after these three? Parasha, it's in a order. Yes, that's what I'm saying. The parasha has them in a different order, so you see that they actually have, 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 have reordered it. The larger question is, in terms of the vidui, I think if next time we meet, I would like to much more go through the master and to show what... But the interesting question is, how did the Mishnah, essentially, how, how, did, they, how did they read the Chumash? The Chumash says nothing about Vidui except for the, for the people. But the understanding of the Mishnah is that Vidui is true on two other occasions in chapter 16. It's interesting how they are to read the Parsha. The, the broader question is how to read the Parsha in general to come up with what we call this Avodah. The Avodah, I'll just end with one thought. Next time, whenever that will be, next week is day of learning, but next time we meet about the Maxer, about Vidui, I want to discuss the Yom Kippur service, the Viduim of Yom Kippur in general. Not just over here, but what's interesting, to come back to one last point, the Avodah of Yom Kippur is essentially the Mishnah. It's very striking. It's the Mishnah. We're starting with the 
repetition of the Shmona Esrei, the central part, after the Chazan has permission to pray. Ochiyo Akeo, you start with the Avodah. On Rosh Hashanah, we start with Malchiyot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. He has permission to pray, and then Malchiyot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. And the difference between the two is very striking and very significant. Malchiyot, Zichronot, and Shofrot of Rosh Hashanah consists, the text consists of verses from the Bible. There are 30 of them. What we say in the classical service is 30 verses from the Bible. That is the currency, that's the text of Rosh Hashanah. In exactly the same place in the service of Yom Kippur, we don't read verses from the Bible. We study the Mishnah. Now that is highly interesting, and I'll make a very simple point. It relates to what we began with this, uh, earlier. The Rosh Hashanah is a day about God, in short. God is the king, God is the judge, God is revealed. It is indirectly about ourselves, of course, but fundamentally the theme of Rosh Hashanah is God's kingship. In talking about God, we're very hesitant to speak about God, for all kinds of good reasons, so we use the text of God, we use the Bible. When we discuss God, describe God, we use the... Rosh Hashanah is not about us, Rosh Hashanah is about God and God's... we live in God's world. Yom Kippur is different. Yom Kippur is about repentance, it's about we are full partners on Yom Kippur. It's the parasha in chapter 30 in Yitzhavim, parasha Satshuva. It's we, 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 we initiate it, we are major players on Yom Kippur, we see ourselves as capable of repenting, we see ourselves as capable of making changes, we've been thinking about it since the last day. So there the text is not God's word. There the text of Yom Kippur is, is, is human ingenuity, human ability to, 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 to order our world, which is what the Mishnah is all about. The text of Yom Kippur, of course, is the Mishnah, and that's how we start Yom Kippur, actually. Kol Nidre. I'm going to Davin, where are you going to be for Kol Nidre? This is crazy. Be right? What do you mean where you be for Kol Nidre? What do you mean for Kol Nidre? Where will you be that night in Shul? But your Kol Nidre is not even on Yom Kippur. It's before Yom Kippur. And, it be, and, we, and the Gemara has it for Rosh Hashanah. The Jewish people, forget the text, Jewish people see Kol Nidre as part of Yom Kippur. What is Kol Nidre? The nullification of vows. What's the source for the nullification of vows in the Bible? The Mishnah says there is none. The Parchin Bavia. Not only is there none, it seems to contradict. It's the human ability to change, what, to change reality, actually. Or to, over, to overcome what, what God thinks. God will forgive us because we have determined that we're not responsible. That's Kol Nidre. That's Yom Kippur. Kol Nidre becomes a symbol for Yom Kippur, actually. Taurus Nadarim. It's hand in hand with the Mishnah. It's about human possibility. That's what Yom Kippur is about. So the text reflects it. The Rosh Hashanah is not about human possibility. It's about living in God's world and what the implications are. Yes, we begin to ponder maybe we shouldn't be this way. We're standing in judgment. So anyway, the next time we meet about Yom Kippur, that Vidui will go through this, first of all, through the confessions of Yom Kippur, which are very interesting, and then we'll have an opportunity to look more broadly at the Master.